Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name is Jeremy Jones. I'm a fourth-year medical student at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and the producer for today's episode on febrile infants. Our host today will be Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine. We are also joined by two national experts in the field, Dr. Richard Scarfone, an associate professor of pediatric emergency medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and co-director of the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He has published extensively on this topic and is the lead author on the febrile infant pathway used at the CHOP ED. We are also joined by Dr. Prashant Mahajan, a professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at the University of Michigan, where he serves as the division chief of pediatric emergency medicine. Dr. Mahajan has also previously served as the chair of the section on emergency medicine for the American Academy of Pediatrics. He has been nationally recognized for his innovative work on the evaluation of the febrile infant with the use of novel RNA expression analysis using microarrays to define bacterial and non-bacterial biosignatures. Welcome to both of our guests, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy, for that introduction, and welcome, Prashant and Rich, to the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm excited to welcome not only two of my colleagues in pediatric emergency medicine, but also two physicians, educators, researchers, who are truly impacting the way we approach the management of febrile infants in the ED. So welcome, Prashant and Rich. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Before we get into our topic, febrile infants, I'd like our listeners to get to know a little bit more about uh, the two of you. So I have two quick questions. Rich, first one for you. What professional achievement are you most proud of and why? All right, Bob. So you promised me no difficult questions and you're starting off with that. Um, <laughs> wow. I would have to say um, back in the beginning of my career when I was just a puppy, I was fortunate enough to win um, two teaching awards. One, one at St. Chris, my first job at a fellowship, and the other here at CHOP, where I am now. And, um, you know, considering the quality of the education that the residents, the house staff were getting by so many different educators and, and uh, clinicians at the time, I, I was fairly proud of that and very uh, overwhelmed by it. That's great, Rich, and I'm sure the residents have benefited from that. Prashant, how about you? What's your most proudest professional achievement? So first of all, I need to congratulate Rich. That is a very, very neat accomplishment. So kudos to you for that. Uh, for me, um, you know, having trained in a very clinical environment back in India and then practiced medicine, uh, pediatric emergency medicine in a very clinical setting in Detroit Children's Hospital, uh, my accomplishment I think I'm really proud of is getting a research which was federally funded through the work on febrile infants. So something that, you know, I am really proud and I... I'm very happy <laughs> I was able to do it. Required a lot of support from mentees, mentors, and friends, but we got it done. That's great, Prashant. And not only will we be talking about research of febrile infants, but specifically the research that you, like you said, have been funded with and have published over the last few years. Rich, what's your favorite disease or favorite diagnosis to make and why? Another tough question, Bob. How do you, how do you answer that? I, I like cancer. I like sickle cell disease. Um, I could probably more easily say what I don't like, but um, I would say honestly, probably the challenge around investigating the child who's febrile, not necessarily the febrile infant, but any child that comes in with fever and um, that detective work that's involved with making that investigation. And I've been amazed over the years of how many different paths that journey can take. Great, Prashant, your favorite diagnosis or disease to make in the ED? So it's less common now, but I've seen quite a few of these uh, is children who get uh, infected with rabies. And the reason why is because uh, it is a condition where you look at what the textbook describes as uh, signs and symptoms, and you can actually elicit them, especially the hydrophobia and the aerophobia. And I've seen it. So once you see it, you will never forget. It's a very interesting condition. And Prashant, what country uh, back? Uh, in India. 
So we used to have quite a few children with rabies and we used to have actually a rabies ward. And, you know, rabies obviously is like a fatal condition once you get uh, symptomatic because there is really no therapy. And it has a very long incubation period. So, you know, uh, when you look at the textbook described incubation period, it can last over months to a year. And we had seen a couple of interesting children with that. That's why. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, Prashant. Let's move on now to our topic, febrile infants. And I guess it's reasonable to say among my colleagues, there's really no consensus regarding the optimal management and treatment strategy for the febrile infant today. Okay. And there's a history. I want to talk briefly about the history of managing these febrile infants. I guess we can go back to the mid to late 1970s, where many children in the first two months, sometimes even three months of age, when they presented to an ED, would get a full evaluation for their fever, blood work, urine, spinal tap, and get admitted to the hospital while cultures were pending and they were being treated with IV antibiotics. It wasn't until the mid 80s when Prashant, Rich, and I probably were just thinking about going into medicine, where our colleagues in certain cities at specific children's hospitals came up with criteria for their institution. Rich, take us back a little bit and talk about, I know you lecture, uh, both of you lecture on febrile infants. Tell us about the different criteria that were developed in the 80s and how they've evolved up until the present day. Sure, Bob. It's a good point uh, to go back in time to see where we've come. And you're right, it has evolved. Our management of these babies has evolved qu quite a bit. Um, early in my career, so late 80s, early 90s, as you pointed out, any child aged two months or less who had a fever pretty much received a full evaluation for sepsis that included a lumbar puncture and most typically was admitted for presumptive antibiotics. And then a group of researchers got together at various centers and said, hey, can we define some low risk criteria where we can safely manage some of these children as outpatients? And the three that you know, arose from that, the three protocols that, that came out of that work uh, originated in Boston and Philly and Rochester. And so it's interesting, really how you practiced throughout your career was probably largely a function of where you trained and where your, your first job was, and you just adopted that approach. And so briefly in Boston, the protocol was such that if you were 29 to 90 days of age, you were had a full sepsis workup, including a lumbar puncture. And if the studies uh, were, you know, the screening tests were thought to be normal and your, your child was judged to be well appearing, then those babies were sent home after a dose of ceftriaxone. And so you can say that Boston probably of the three was perhaps the most conservative approach. At the other end of the spectrum was the Rock Rochester criteria, probably the least conservative in that they enrolled babies aged 60 days or younger, so including neonates, and did not automatically perform an LP um, in well-appearing babies. And those who met the low-risk criteria based on the initial labs were discharged home without antibiotics. So it was really at the opposite end of the spectrum, as I said. The Philly criteria, which is what I've mostly practiced just because of where I've trained, was kind of in the middle. So these, these babies were 29 to 50 days of age. They, like Boston, all had a lumbar puncture performed, but if they met low-risk criteria, they were discharged without antibiotics. And so you could see there's great variability, which as you pointed out, persists today. Right, and thank you for that, Rich. Prashant, you're very active in the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. Tell us a little bit with your dealings with our colleagues, sort of all over, not only in the country, but in the world, how much variation in practice is there, specifically in pediatric emergency departments? So, so that's, that's a very um, important question because that actually is the driver for all this research, right? Because you want to make sure that uh, the febrile infant, regardless of where they present, regardless of prior training, are managed in a sort of a similar way, you know, which is based on evidence. When we started looking specifically at the pediatric emergency, like tertiary care children's hospital, even in that group, we found substantial variation. Now, one of the things that we found that there is not much variation in the very young infant, like in the first month of life, and or depending upon how you define that, you know, some define it at 28 days or less, or first month, etc. But as a general rule of thumb, 
close to 90% of these infants, febrile infants, get an LP, get hospitalized, and get anti empiric antibiotics. The variation is most once you are in the in the older age, come in the second month of life, you know, essentially. And that variation, even amongst the tertiary care EDs, you we found a substantial amount of variation. So in the range that somewhere uh, from the lumbar puncture rate and the hospitalization rate varied from 40% to up to 70 to 80%. And then when we, uh, well, the other interesting thing that we found now that we've been looking at these infants for the last 10 or so years in two separate cohorts, even within the two cohorts, we found out that there is a substantial difference. And more so in the second month of life that previously, like five or six years ago, close to 40% of them were getting a lumbar puncture and or getting admitted in the second month of life. Now that is in the 20 to 30% range. So over a period of time, even that, and that sort of is the most recent data. And then now to the variation is even more so when you go in the non-children's setting. So in a community-based hospital, you see a different kind of an approach. And interestingly enough, it also depends upon who is seeing you. So if you're in a primary care practice, if you have a good follow-up, they have a completely different approach. And lastly, depending upon your professional training. So for instance, if it's an infectious disease person, a neonatologist, a hospitalist, a peds emergency medicine, or an emergency medicine, all of these people have different approaches. And that sort of explains the substantial variation that we see. Okay, so we're all in agreement, a lot of variation. And now I sort of want to hone in on, again, using your expert advice and also the research that both of you are well aware of and have participated in. As Prashant, you mentioned that one to two month old range, okay, where they used to get the knee jerk, full septic workup and admission to the hospital. We've been able to, via the different criteria that Rich pointed out, the Boston, the Philadelphia, the Rochester criteria, we've been able to identify low risk infants, okay? Infants have, who have certain clinical characteristics, lab characteristics, who will benefit not from the full septic workup, but actually from less of a workup and potentially disposition home. So Rich, talk to us about sort of the Philadelphia criteria, but your research looking at the modified Philadelphia criteria and outlining some of those low risk criteria that can be placed on these children so that the amount of workup and the disposition home has a greater likelihood. Sure, Bob. You know, I think traditionally, CHOP has been very conservative in their approach to these babies for lots of reasons. I guess one is that we're a tertiary care referral center, and so perhaps we're seeing a sicker population, and we have to factor that in. Another is that we recognize that our pathways, our clinical practice guidelines, are available on the internet, and so anyone can use them and adopt them, and they will be adopting them in various practice settings, as Prashant pointed out. So we had been happily tapping these babies in the second month of life really throughout my career. And I would say in the, um, right around 2012, 2013, we decided, hey, let, let's look at this a little more closely. And there were a couple of factors at play. One was the advent of these wonderful vaccines. So H-flu-B and, and pneumococcus. Now these neonates are not necessarily getting these vaccines, but their older siblings are right, and the other children in daycare. So in other words, via herd immunity, they're protected from some of these bugs. That was one factor. Another big factor that influenced us um, in looking at this more closely was a study published by Hupler. And Hupler looked at 25 years worth of data, 22 different studies, almost 4,000 febrile infants who met low risk criteria among those studies. Only two of them had bacterial meningitis and both of those were neonates. So it was really eye-opening to see that information. And we decided, hey, let, let's look at our CHOP experience. And we did, it was a retrospective study, seven years worth of data. And it was about 1200 infants that had been tapped, had had LP over those uh, seven years. And we found just one patient with bacterial meningitis out of those 1200. And that was a baby that, of course, we pulled the chart, clearly met high-risk criteria, was you know, had a bandemia, was described as irritable and fussy, was actually cared for in our resuscitation room. So a long-winded way of saying for seven years, we were performing LPs in the second month of life and didn't uncover a single case of bacterial meningitis. 
And so with that, we, we did decide based on all of those factors that I just mentioned to omit the spinal tap for those 29 to 50 days of age if they otherwise met the other low risk criteria. And it's on our pathway, but it includes, you know, being uh, full term and not having a prolonged NICU stay, l- looking well, not having like a skin or soft tissue infection. Um, importantly, and, and Prashant is going to make this point, and, and we have to acknowledge that none of these data that I just mentioned, the low risk criteria, is statistically derived. And that's why his work is so important, right? Because the PCARN work is statistically derived. And so we welcome the opportunity. And again, I think Prashant is going to share that soon that there's a study in the pipeline that's going to be published. And, you know, change is hard, but but it may actually cause us to even change what the, the, the approach that we currently have based on the PCARN data. Great, Rich. Thank you for that tease. But before we get to that, Prashant, okay. give, let me have you, Prashant, share with our listeners your experience, uh, both at Detroit and then moving on to Ann Arbor at CS Mott Children's with that one to two month old group. Did you follow the Philadelphia criteria? Did you invent your own criteria? Did you adopt some of the others? And also give your experience, not only in your ERs that you worked at, but the PCARN experience, since you're very familiar with many of your colleagues who are part of the PCARN network what guidelines or criteria generally are followed throughout the country? Right. So, so one thing I can tell you just by my personal experience, right? There is a, there is a substantial value in having some guidance, you know, and something that you can really anchor onto because you are looking at an, at a clinical conundrum where the baby is not giving you any clinical clues. The physical exam is not very useful. And now you're relying on, these criteria to make sure that you're not missing the most dangerous condition that you don't want to miss, which is bacterial meningitis, right? So, so first of all, you have to applaud the fact that folks before me have actually worked on this in the Boston, Rochester, Philadelphia group, because we used to rely on that. But what I saw at a clinical level was because the outcome, the bad outcome was so uncommon, every individual clinician may not have seen, say, a bacterial meningitis that got missed because they did not investigate. So their practice pattern varied literally on what day of the week they were practicing, what season of the week they were practicing, what time of the day they were practicing. So we did use a combination of Philadelphia, Rochester, and uh, Boston criteria, but I found a lot of people were doing their own thing within that and rationalizing it, you know, because they felt, oh, I've observed the patient for some more hours. I've repeated a temperature and it looks okay from that perspective. So to tell you the truth, Bob, there was a lot of variation, but we used to go definitely within to these criteria. When I looked at PCARN folks, even when talking to them individually, as we were preparing for our research, we found out that even within the centers that were practicing, according to the guidelines, there were individuals who were varying depending upon the clinical context, you know? And then lastly, what I can answer is, is when I moved to uh, Mott Children's Hospital, this is now four years ago, started and I had an inherent bias because I was sort of attuned to the, some of the results that we were finding out. And we created a guideline, which is more consistent with the prediction rule. And something we can talk more about it later, because one of the biomarkers that I really found, which is more predictive, you know, as an individual biomarker was procalcitonin. So if you have the ability to have procalcitonin, it was sort of a game changer in that sense that we could make disposition decision, evaluation management decisions based on that. Great. We're going to talk a little bit more about procalcitonin shortly, but before we get to that, so right now we're focusing on the zero to two month old children. Okay. There's a recent study in pediatric infectious disease looking at the risk of serious bacterial infection defined as either UTI, bacteria, or bacterial meningitis, showing that in the two to three month old age group, the percent chance of an SBI, serious bacterial infection, closely mimics the rate that we see in zero to two month olds. I think at least in my clinical practice, once they reach 58 days or Prashant, when you said two months, we sort of say fever, Tylenol, follow up with the pediatrician. So what would you, what are your comments based on that study, which again, was just a single institution study, but again, knowing that the serious bacterial infection rate, probably the majority UTIs is significant in that two to three month old, very comparable to the zero to two month old. 
Rich, you want to take that first and then Prashant, you'll add? Yeah, I would agree, Bob, in that throughout my career, I have somewhat arbitrarily, right? These cutoffs are very arbitrary, but somewhat arbitrarily grouped the child who's two to three months of age in with the older kids. So a febrile toddler as opposed to a febrile infant. I guess the thought there was that they're that much further removed from exposure to maternal flora, although late onset group E strep could still be a possibility. Uh, they're, perhaps their immune systems are that much more mature. Having said that, I think you know, at the bedside, if one is seeing an, a nine or 10 week old who's highly febrile and fussy, you're gonna be more concerned about that baby than say the two or three year old. So you are gonna use a different yardstick at the bedside. But for purposes of you know, their risk for maternal flora, like I spoke about, and even herpes, which we haven't spoken about yet, clearly it's that neonate and even in the second month of life, those babies that we worry about just a, a bit more. Your point about UTI is well taken. You know, thanks to Kathy Shaw and others, there's really good data to drive that decision-making about the risk factors for UTI. And certainly a child in that third month of life who meets any of those criteria would all have a low threshold for checking a urine analysis and culture. Yeah, yeah Rich. Uh, so I, I completely agree with you. You know, and I think you brought up an important clinical point that I just want to reiterate exactly what you said. So, you know, if the child is ill-appearing, then it is not a conundrum, you know, in the sense, obviously the conundrum is what does the child have, but it's not a conundrum as to what your next steps are. You're going to investigate and manage the child. It is the well-appearing two to three month old that you're, you know, the real question is. So to me, my response is exactly consistent with Rich. And I also want to applaud the work of Kathy and then Mark Gorlick and a few other people is I would definitely investigate that, that infant for a urinary tract infection that is a given. And I would not be as aggressive in, in the blood biomarkers or performing a lumbar puncture because by that time, social cues have developed, the vaccinations impact has started to take effect and you are a little bit more comfortable with your clinical exam. So I would not be as aggressive. So to me, that prior study, which you mentioned, Bob, is an interesting data point, but I, be I truly believe that the prevalence has gone down sufficiently not to require a knee-jerk comprehensive sepsis workup. Great, Prashant and Rich. Let's move on. Let's focus a little bit on urinary tract infections. Out of all the SBIs we talk about, depending on the study you, you look at, up to 80 to 85% of those infections are UTIs. And Rich, at least in the CHOP pathway, there's been a relatively recent change where, especially in the one to two month old age range, a positive urinalysis in the past would mandate full cord press, LP, and admission. So talk to us about the changes that have occurred with a positive urinalysis in that one to two month old age group and why, why did they occur? Sure. Yeah, you're right. And, and I did say earlier, change is hard, but yet we've had these two major changes in the last six, seven years. And the, the most recent one was our approach to the child who has an abnormal urinalysis in the second month of life, but who otherwise meets low risk criteria. So in that setting, you can argue it one of two ways. You can say, okay, I, this child has an abnormal UA, probably pylo. I have my source and I can stop my investigation and treat for pylo. Or you can say, okay, this child seems to have pylo. Now I have to worry about urosepsis. I'll do a full workup, including an LP and cover with broad spectrum antibiotics and admit to the hospital. And for years and years and years, we had always done the latter. And again, we like to practice evidence-based medicine uh, as much as we can. And we started doing a deeper dive into the literature and really finding that the, it really that approach wasn't supported. Most notably, I think it was Thompson's study where she looked at almost 2,000 babies with fever and pilo in, in 22 or 23 different centers and found that in the second month of life, only two out of about a thousand had bacterial meningitis. So really about the same incidence as you might expect in the population who did not have pylo, but yet in the neonates, about seven out of 800 had bacterial meningitis. And so there was a, that study and, and a few others that suggested that a selective approach was probably more appropriate. The other factor, Bob, is that you, it's, we're not living in a, in a bubble in the emergency department, right? We're interconnected with 
those who admit these children to the hospital. And so we have to get buy-in from them as well. And we did. We met with infectious disease specialists. We met with our general pediatrician colleagues and our hospitalists. And we reviewed the literature together and then made this change. Um, so again, now the, the pathway is such that if you're in that second month of life and if your urinalysis suggests above pilo, you otherwise meet low-risk criteria, you don't mandate an LP. Great. So we're focusing on serious bacterial infections in the first two months of life in infants, but there are other types of infections that we see. And actually now we have more rapid ways to diagnose these. And these are viruses, Prashant, RSV, influenza, and of course this past year, COVID. A lot of times I remember in the past doing the workup, the blood work, the spinal tap on these children, I would say to myself, they have a virus. Why are we doing all this workup? And now some recent literature has shown that there's definitely a lower risk of concomitant bacterial infections in these children who either clinically have a virus or have a lab proven virus. So Prashant, tell us how that has changed, if at all, your approach to these children, if you're able to either clinically or laboratory wise identify a virus. And does it matter which virus it is? RSV, influenza, even COVID. So, so great question, right? And I think that is one of the reasons why the variation has been happening and more so in the community EDs also, because if you look at a baby who is well appearing and has obvious viral signs, then people have a tendency not to investigate because they can assign the reason of the fever to the virus. And that is true because 95% of reasons for fever is a viral etiology in that sense. What I can definitely say that there is evidence that show that has been shown you know even prior research from the uh, pem crc network and now some research that we have done that if you have a documented viral infection whether it is rsv influenza or any other virus then the risk of having serious bacterial infection is substantially low the only caveat i would like to mention because there hasn't been enough data to say this is even in those studies and the some of the studies that we have done the number of infants with bacterial meningitis in the viral positive and in the viral negative were so low that we couldn't say that there is a statistically uh, meaningful difference that the risk of bacterial meningitis is lower in a viral uh, positive infant. So we, I would have to be a little bit careful just for that particular point. And then I think you brought up another point as related to the type of virus. As a rule of thumb or based on the data, if you have an infant with an RSV infection or a flu infection, the risk of a SBI is substantially lower. Interestingly, if you have like a, a rhinovirus infection, the risk is not much lower. And we know that rhinovirus is a more commonly occurring commensal type of a virus. So that is an interesting virus. You know, so we, we have yet to study more about it. But definitely the risk if you have RSV, flu A, flu B is substantially lower. And lastly, related to COVID, there were a couple of case reports that got published. I think the number of cases are low, so you really can't say. But I can say as a separate comment based on some of the other work that we have done with microarrays, different viruses induce a different response. So you will find a differential prevalence based on the type of the virus. Bob, if I just might add, yeah, I agree with what Prashant is saying. I would say that I, I still find myself being fairly conservative in working those babies up for UTI. The, the data that, and I, the, the study that I'm most familiar with, I guess, was Levine. It was a multi-center study. It's, it's pretty old now, but well done, multi-center study, and basically comparing a cohort who were RSV positive versus febrile infants who were not RSV positive, and finding, as, as Prashant pointed out, definitely higher SBI rate in the RSV negative kids. But for uh, UTI in particular, it was a pretty, it was about 5% in that study who had pilo, so not negligible. So I find myself still wanting to check a urine in that setting. And that study and, and most others, as Prashant pointed out, was not really powered to determine if there is a difference in bacterial meningitis in those two groups. Uh, one other virus, enterovirus, we see it commonly in the summer and the fall, sort of the same rules, Prashant Rich, for enterovirus. A lot of times we'll check serology or CSF uh, PCR for enterovirus. Does that change the uh, workup for a bacterial infection? 
So at least in my experience and some the, the research that is there, it has sort of a similar guidance. The presence of an enterovirus, the risk of a concomitant SBI is much lower. But again, you can't rule out the bacterial meningitis. And I just want to reiterate what Rich made a very valid point. Just because there is a viral infection, you should not ignore UTI, which is a treatable infection, obviously, and easy to diagnose. So we should not miss out on that. Uh, we, we've tried our best to get away from the panels, the respiratory viral panels, which are so expensive. And at the end of the day, do we really care if the child has metanumavirus or whatever? So, and so when we do PCR testing for enterovirus, it's usually from CSF. And we tend to do it in the summer months when enterovirus is more prevalent. And there was a study out of CHOP, again, fairly, I'm, I'm studying a lot of old studies, sorry. Um, a fairly well done study many years ago that showed that among those who were enteroviral positive, they had shorter hospitalizations, less antibiotic use. So they had a benefit and it was cost effective to have worked them up for that because it saved a day in the hospital. So I think for that narrow window, but usually in the ED setting, I don't have that data back in real time for it to influence my management. Great. Let's uh, move on to uh, a procedure that Prashant, Rich, uh, and myself, we've probably done hundreds of, and we could sort of do them in our sleep. We have muscle memory, and that's the spinal tap. Okay. Uh, we, all, we all work in institutions where we have trainees, and some of the more recent literature has come out to say that the first pass success rate in an LP by a trainee, by a resident, is about 40 to 50%. We all know why that is, because we're doing fewer and fewer based on the research that we discussed. And that leads me, Prashant, to the clinical prediction rule. So we were focusing on the one to two month old children and trying to identify low risk children there who don't need an LP. Prashant, talk to us about your research regarding the clinical prediction rule and how it not only included one to two month old febrile infants, but also zero to one month old febrile infants. Right. So thanks, Bob. Uh, and I think that um, the question is very pertinent, but I just want to uh, give a note of recognition to all the colleagues and friends and collaborators across the network over the last 10 or 15 years that we've been working, and especially to my mentors, Dr. Scooperman and uh, Octavio Ramilo, because together we have built this rule. Uh, so the clinical prediction rule essentially is based on prospectively derived criteria, and it it followed the guidelines of how to derive a good prediction rule in the sense we had a derivation set and then we validated the rule and then we published it. And then subsequently we have re-validated that on a completely independent cohort of 2000 or uh, infants. And what the prediction rule showed us that if you have three objective criteria, which are urine analysis, an absolute neutrophil count and a procalcitonin level, which accordingly are a positive or a negative UA, an absolute neutrophil count of 4,000 and below, and a procalcitonin level 0.5 and below. This is the rounded rule because the original cutoffs were 4,090 for the absolute neutrophil count and a PCT value of 1.71. But it is very hard for people to remember that, right? So we rounded it off and the rule did not rule, uh, lose its performance. And so essentially, if an infant is negative for UA, has an ANC less than 4,000, as a procalcitonin less than 0.5, the risk of having a serious bacterial infection, inclusive of bacterial meningitis, is very, very low. The rule is sensitive in the range of 99%, you know, upper limit of sensitivity, confidence interval, and negative predictive value in, in that range. And the point that you mentioned, the, what was very striking is, with these three criteria, obviously you're not doing an LP and we did not miss a substantial number of meningitis at all. You know, so the rule had that level of sensitivity. And uh, the interesting thing was that the rule was successful even in the zero to one month of age, though we have some caveats related to when and when not to consider an LP, just because of lack of comfort in the very young age, you know, clinically. And Prashant, I'm not a statistician. I know you and Rich have a lot more expertise. Can you talk about the power of that study? In other words, can you make conclusions or does it need to be validated in a much larger, let's say, PCARN study in the future to use those three lab tests as part of the clinical prediction rule? 
So one thing I can mention, obviously, there is my own personal bias since <laughs> we were all participating in the study. But a couple of things we had taken care of before uh, conducting the study. We were very careful in defining the inclusion and exclusion criteria. We were very careful to make sure that all the infants who entered the cohort were comprehensively evaluated for all three SBIs, like urinary tract infection, bacteremia, and bacterial meningitis with their outcomes. So patients also had follow-ups on that one. And we wanted to make sure that everyone had the same level of evaluation in the form of uh, blood biomarkers and the screening tests, like the urine analysis, CBC, procalcitonin. And second is this rule has been derived on a cohort of 1800 infants with a derivation and a validation set, and then reconfirmed on a separate independent cohort of close to 2000 infants. So give, and the, the rule performance stayed the same across these cohorts. So I personally do not believe that we would need to mount an effort to revalidate this uh, given the low prevalence of bacterial meningitis and SBI in general. Where I think the next step would be is in, in implementation of the rule, you know, to change, uh, to reduce variation in care. Can I, just, can I jump in with a question, Bob? Sure, Rich. You're fired as the moderator. I'm, I'm asking questions now. Great. <laughs> <laughs> this is very intriguing, and, and we really want to look at the validation study. And do you know when that's going to be published? Yeah, so the validation uh, results were presented by Nate Cooperman okay. in the SAEM uh, that just got done, and it should be coming out in the next four to six months. Great. Uh, it's ready. Uh, I guess one of the questions would be around procalcitonin. In your opinion, in your experience, uh, do children or infants with viral illness tend to have elevated procalcitonin? Is procalcitonin effective in differentiating uh, with a degree of certainty, viral versus bacterial. I guess the corollary to that is, it speaks to the specificity of the screen. And are, are we tapping a lot of babies, uh, more babies than perhaps we would otherwise? Right. So there are actually two questions embedded there, right? So right. looking at the specificity of the rule, so the rule had a specificity of around 60%. Okay. So essentially that should help guide on the number of tests that we are doing. Related to the second question or the first question about the procalcitonin and the level in uh, bacterial versus viral, it is uh, prior research not related to the work that we have done right. uh, that procalcitonin is a much more inflammatory response in a bacterial infection. Okay. The conundrum that we face is in this cohort, right? That when the infants came in, they came in at whatever duration of their illness was assuming that the onset was of fever was time zero, which is not necessarily true physiologically, right? They could have had the infection festering and then manifested the fever. Uh, so I, at this moment, I don't think we can use procalcitonin as a, to, to differentiate between viral versus bacterial. But I want to add another caveat to that particular statement is that the prediction rule should only be applied if you have all these three criteria. So UA, ANC, and procalcitonin. So if you are in a situation where you do not have procalcitonin, then you cannot really apply the rule, but you have to look at a few other features to then make a decision-making, you know? But if you really want to stick to the rule, then you have to have these before making a, uh, a decision right. on, on the difference. On the but, but the rule is any one of those three factors would necessitate the workup, right? Any one of those three? Correct. Yes. But even that, that is also nuanced, uh, Rich, because I think you made an earlier point. Like, so what if the rule is non-negative in the sense if the UA is positive, but ANC is normal and PCT is normal? Then to the point that you made about the prior work and some of the work that we have done, how do you take care of an infant who is positive urine analysis, but negative? And our research, and we, that is also was published, uh, sorry, that was presented as an abstract at um, AAP and PAS and SAEM. It's coming out soon. We found out that there were zero infants who had in the second month of life who had a positive UA who had meningitis. So zero infants had meningitis, you know? So positive UA in absence of a, in presence of a normal ANC and PCT is a point where the point that I would like to make up is bring out is about the concept of shared decision-making, which now is more evidence-based. Now we are giving clinical evidence to the providers who can use that to guide their decisions.
Excellent point. Thank you, Prashant. One other test I want to talk about in helping to differentiate viral from bacterial infection, RNA biosignatures. I think, Prashant, you actually came to CHOP a few years ago to present at a Grand Rounds. Rich and I loved the different colors, the slides with with RNA biosignatures. We've been talking about these in sepsis for a while. I know in the febrile infant, are we any closer? Is there going to be a blood test that we could do in the ER to help differentiate viral versus bacterial in the near future? So, Bob, um, it is coming very close. In fact, there was a recent article, uh, as recent as January of this year, uh, from a group from, which is, I believe, UK-based, where they have come out with a two-gene transcript, which is placed on a PCR platform with a, I don't know the exact turnaround time, but in the two to four-hour range turnaround time. Our research has also identified that there are close to 10 gene transcripts that have more than 95% accuracy in differentiating between a bacterial versus a viral infection. It is awaiting validation, but we believe that once it gets validated, the next step is to move it to a PCR platform to help those individuals where you just want to make that difference, you know, to identify whether it's bacterial or not. And that can potentially have a turnaround time. At least some PCR platforms have a turnaround time between the two to four hour range. So it could be a result that can guide clinical decision-making at bedside. That's great. We look forward to the future research and the publication of some of those studies. Another controversy that we see in managing these children are children who are febrile at home. Okay, so the mother or father has taken a rectal temperature at home, and then they come into the ED and they do not have a fever. No antipyretics were administered. A recent study two years ago in Journal Pediatrics said that the risk of serious bacterial infections in these children are about two-thirds the risk of the children who present febrile to the ED. Do you follow that study? Do you change your management of those children that you see in the ER? And what would your recommendations be for our listeners? Rich, you want to take that first? Uh, Sure. You know, when I was um, during during my residency and fellowship training, Bonadeo was doing a lot of work around this issue. And I think most of his data suggested that if there was a documented fever outside of the emergency department, whether it be at home or in the doc's office, and the child came in uh, and was afebrile, that the likelihood of serious bacterial infection was comparable to a baby who was febrile. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the more recent work that you just cited. So I've always followed that practice. I think we don't get any points for sending home a baby with serious bacterial infection, right? And that goes unrecognized. So I think a conservative stance does make sense. I think the bigger struggle is the, the baby with the tactile temp. So felt warm to the touch, comes into the emergency department and is afebrile and how to manage that baby. And you know, the, the only advice that I can give is uh, to individualize that approach right? Not all of those babies are going to be created equal. You're going to have a baby who comes in who's um, 37.8 rectally, and so technically doesn't have a fever, maybe is a bit fussy. So that baby is probably going to be treated as if he or she are febrile. And then you have someone at the, uh, an infant at the opposite end of that spectrum, who's, you know, 37.0, you know, cooing and babbling and drinking and looking great. And, um, first-time parents, so, you know, so, and, and everything in between. So it's, it's hard. It's not easy. Um, but I definitely have always practiced and probably always will that if there's a, a true documented fever uh, pre-ED, the baby's febrile. Great. Prashant, your thoughts? Yeah, I, and I agree with you, Rich. And um, some of the secondary analysis of the PCARN data was actually published just very recently. And there is that is true what Rich, Rich just mentioned. You know, if you are febrile in the ED as compared to history of fever at home, you're more likely to have SBI. But again, the risk of meningitis, the studies, the, the prevalence is so low that this, the numbers of cases are so low that you really can't uh, use that as a criteria for doing or not doing an LP, you know, which to me is the most inter- uh, important uh, evaluation. Great. A a word about hypothermia. So the child who looks well, okay, not fussy, not irritable, is there a low temperature that they come in that you would define as hypothermia that would trigger you to perform an evaluation for a serious bacterial infection? Any thoughts on that? So Bob, you started off with tough questions and now you're asking more. 
That's not that's not fair. I have to go to the bathroom. I can't answer that. No. Um, yeah, again, really tough cases, right? I guess technically the newborn 36.5 or less would be considered hypothermia. On occasion, you do come across a baby who's, you know, 36.3, 36.2. You have to try to determine was the baby uh, left exposed and unbundled, cold environment, you know, kind of ask those questions. One approach might be to rewarm in the ED and, you know, just observe the baby for a prolonged period of time, observe their, their ability to feed, make sure they're not fussy, et cetera. But once again, you know, as I said earlier with the, the documented temp at home, I think I would have, I would have a different uh, threshold for initiating a sepsis workup and not necessarily an LP as Prashant pointed out, but just putting them on the pathway, so to speak, based on their age and um, and evaluating them, I, I definitely would have a lower threshold for for a baby like that. I Prashant, hypothermia. Agree. Yeah, sorry, I completely agree with uh, Rich. And you're right; there isn't enough data out there to you know give guidance to, to clinicians. But it is it is true that if you're hypothermic, the risk of bacteremia or serious bacterial infection is a little bit higher. Uh, but there is there requires to be a lot more study. But it's going to be a difficult condition to study because these infants are very infrequent and we need to have enough of true positives to guide evidence. It's intriguing, Bob. You know, I think, and, and Prashant would agree and you would as well, Bob, that when we first started, there was very little data to guide these kind of decisions, really very little. We were, it was the wild west and we were on our own and we were lucky if there were some case series. And now thanks to Prashant and many others that these wonderful studies, multi-center studies, PCARN efforts, to guide our decision-making. So the remaining questions that aren't evidence-based, that don't have evidence-based answers are for just what Prashan said, that it's a really rare condition. And even with a multi-center study, it's still difficult to come up with an evidence-based approach. Let's, uh, let's sort of conclude to finish up. Prashant, look in your crystal ball. Uh, like uh, Rich mentioned, you're involved in some active research, uh, the clinical prediction rule, the biosignatures. If we were having this podcast two, three years from now, what, what would be your best guesstimate of how we would be evaluating febrile infants in the ED? Um, so, uh, I, me, and this is a uh, this is an opinion shared both both by my both mentors, you know, uh, Nate Cooperman again, and then Octavio. Is I believe in the next couple of years, uh, the prediction rule would guide bulk of our evaluation. You know, and obviously by that time it would have had an external validation in, in the real world setting, right? In that sense. I personally believe that the value of the RNA biosignatures is going to be in those infrequent cases. For instance, HSV, you know, we have not yet talked about those, but in those instances, or in the infants who are likely to become septic but don't appear ill at that point in time. And in those cases, where we are assuming, right now we are assuming that the blood culture is the gold standard, right? But it is a reference standard. There are lots of false positives and unknown numbers of false negatives. So there is that cohort of infants which are febrile, but are undetected by cultures is where the microarrays are going to be you know, useful. So just to summarize that, I believe the clinical prediction rule would help guide a majority of these infants but the conundrum in those infants, which is which are difficult to diagnose, that's where the microarrays will be useful. Great, thank you, Prashant. Rich, anything to add uh, about the future? Really similar answer, Bob. I would say I would anticipate that after publication of the the PCARN uh, validation study, that will most likely adopt that decision rule, which of course we're not currently doing. And I'm excited about the prospect of having our RNA biosignature. Bio uh, to guide decision-making. Great, Rich. Rich, Prashant, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy uh, these last 40, 45 minutes learning an awful lot about the management of febrile infants. I want to conclude by each of you getting a chance to give your final thoughts. So what one or two or even three take-home points do you have to the pediatric resident, the pediatric emergency medicine fellow, or the ER physician driving into their shift, listening to this podcast, how should they approach the febrile infant if they were to come across one during their uh, shift that they're driving into right now? Rich? 
So I think that I would emphasize, Bob, that all of these pathways and, and decision rules are there to guide decision making, but there's still a lot of opportunity um, to uh, factor in medical decision making at the bedside. And so don't discount the power of that. Every individual febrile infant is just that, an individual. And you, you need to factor in social issues with the family. You need to factor in your gestalt if, or if you are worried or not about the baby. And it may not be that you can even articulate why. So just continue to be mindful of that. It's not putting something into a formula and, or a cookbook and spitting it out. There's something about a pathway being put down on paper that people just rigidly adhere to it. And, and that's really not the spirit of a clinical practice guideline, whether it be for the febrile infant or, or even you know, any, any other topic where we have pathways. Those are excellent points, Rich. Prashant, final thoughts? I completely agree with Rich. The only other point I would add is, uh, and I think Rich was alluding to that a little bit, is to strongly consider the concept of shared decision-making, especially in the second month of life, because that is where you bring the parental preferences and your individual uh, evidence that could help guide the decision. I think that the data as of now in the very young infant, you know, and just by the fact that there is a higher risk for SBIs, presence of uh, HSV infections that we've not, uh, you know, identified, uh, a more conservative approach is justified. And if you do have to add a biomarker to help you make decision, apart from the urine analysis and the uh, absolute neutrophil count, strongly consider uh, using procalcitonin, uh, which could help you guide your decision-making. Great. Thank you so much, both Rich and Prashant, for your uh, excellent information. And we look forward to having you back uh, for a future podcast uh, when uh, your expertise meets our subject needs. So uh, again, thank you both uh, and have a good evening. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob.